0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 27th, 2024. It's a leap year, so there's still a couple of Days left in February. A couple of days to read some books, and I thought it was a good opportunity to talk to our in-house book expert, Bethan Patrick, an old friend, the book critic of the Los Angeles Times, uh, about some advice of books that would be good to read in February. New books, and Bethan, uh, who is always meticulous, has selected three nonfiction three fiction books, three novels for all of us to read, not just in February, but uh, for the rest of the year. So uh, welcome, beth A happy belated February.
1: Thank you, Andrew, to you as well. I always love hearing the intro and hearing you say, and writers.
0: And writers, yes. (laughs) Um, So beth do you want to start with Uh, I'll I'll leave it up to you. Usually I, I'm the one who decides, do you want to begin with novels or nonfiction?
1: Oh, let's start with novels today. So uh, I can talk about...
0: So, So three novels, which one would you like to begin with?
1: Let's start with Ours by Philip B. Williams, because this is such a different book and I think it's very powerful. So this is a book by Philip B. Williams he is a poet really really accomplished poet he is black and this is about 1830 st louis and a woman named Saint, an african-american woman and she tells her friends and fellow um, enslaved people that she's going to cast a spell on their plantation owners and set them free. And she does. She um, casts a spell that makes all of the owners ill. And while they're ill and dealing with it, the um, enslaved people leave and they go to a town that they call ours. It's uh, right outside of St. Louis. And this book is so beautiful, Andrew, because it's really about magical realism, but magical realism in the service of a story about American racism. It's it's quite special. And one of the things that he writes is, freedom didn't mean safety. And if there's anything more shockingly unpredictable than freedom, it's love. And so once they go to this town that is supposed to belong to them, these people, newly freed, find out that life is not going to be easy. Life is going to continue to have a lot of troubles, but yes, they are free. And it's a radical look at what history might have been and did this history that Williams envisioned give something back to people. And he doesn't leave any easy answers. It goes for four decades. So the people in the town they call ours do experience the Civil War and its aftermath. So it's very much about what it means, not just to be an American, but what it means to be human and to be living in community. It's exceptionally well written. And it's exceptionally important, I think, as we all grapple with, you know, still in the 21st century, the history of racism in this country.
0: Well, the legacy of slavery, and particularly the legacy of the failure of reconstruction, does the book deal with that?
1: It does. And it really shows that Reconstruction was, well, you said failure and and a mess, just an absolute mess, that it's not about people from the North being saints who came down to, you know, just do good things. It's about in this book, these people experience the fact that during Reconstruction, there was wrongdoing on all sides. So he does deal with that. And I think that is also an important part of the book. It doesn't just deal with, okay, here we are. There's been you know, an emancipation proclamation. There's been some change. It shows you afterwards how difficult things were. And those things, of course, led to 20th century uh, problems with racism too.
0: Oh, it sounds like a book about love. And another of your novels is literally called The Book of Love by Kelly Link. Tell me about this book.
1: So I love this. First of all, I love everything about this cover. Yes, wonderful cover. People just
0: listening, I'll describe the cover. It's a deep orangey red, uh, very uh, beautifully designed, very compelling. This kind of book you would pick out of a uh, a bookstore just because of the cover.
1: with the gilded phases of the moon and the the interesting font. And Kelly Link is an author I've been reading for quite a long time. And until The Book of Love... She's been focusing on short stories, and believe me, uh, she's a magician when it comes to short stories, and she writes magical stories, fantastical stories, sometimes chilling and scary stories. She also runs uh, Small Beer Press in East Hampton, Massachusetts with her husband, and I am sorry that I cannot think of Mr. Link's name right now, but Kelly Link is a real talent, and this is Her first full-length work of fiction, and let me tell you, it clocks in at 600 pages. This is going to keep you reading for a while. And the reason you'll keep reading is because Kelly Link's ability to go from one tone, something very whimsical, to something very frightening, back to something quite sincere it's unparalleled. It it is magic in a way. So this is a book about four teenagers from a sort of dead end New England town called Love's End. And three of them die, uh, including one who has a sister who's living. And they're brought back to life by their high school music teacher, Mr. Anabin, and a very strange demonic counterpart of Mr. Annabins, And they're told that two of them will stay in the world and two of them will go back to the world of the dead, but they have to solve a mystery. And it seems like that, I don't know, it seems like that's very slim sounding for a plot, especially for a book of 600 pages, but it's like, she puts the mundane right up against the strange and it works. Um, it's like I don't know, it's just really, really fun. It is, uh, I
0: mean, it sounds like Oz and Book of Love both are excuse the pun here, link because of the, the magical element.
1: I think they are linked because of the magical element. So that's sort of, you know, uh, that that's a bit of February. We've got a bit of magic. And I just want to share something that Kelly Link is known for. Uh, she once won a contest, I believe, where you had to answer the following question. I don't think you won a trip around the world, but you had to say, why do you want to go around the world? And Link's answer was because you can't go through it. And that mm. is, the kind of in her
0: novels you probably could
1: yes exactly exactly she has found a way to go through the world even into the underworld with her writing and i think even if people you know decide that 600 pages is too much whatever comes next from her in full-length fiction is going to be really really fantastic
0: and the third novel also has a uh, a, a magical title, Wandering yes. Stars by Tommy Orange. It does that, a, a, a wonderful name for a writer, Tommy Orange. Isn't it? Um, it's
1: amazing. It, it, Wandering Stars is a follow-on to Tommy Orange's There, There, which I believe was a finalist for the Pulitzer. And so these are connected novels about um, Indigenous Americans. And it goes back and forth. So Wandering Stars is both going forward in time with the families from there there, but Tommy Orange also rewinds to the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre where um, Native Americans were killed or displaced by the U.S. Army. And so uh, we have a character named Jude Starr who's a survivor, and he is sent to this horrible place called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And this is the kind of place that was designed, sadly, to take all of the traditions away from the Native Americans, you know, to make them speak English, to have them forget their own traditions, spiritual and otherwise. And so as the novel moves on and moves forward in time and we see more of this particular family, Tommy Orange wants us to remember that it's really tough to be the children and grandchildren of people who were massacred. Is this
0: a uh, sort of magical realism as well, or is it more real? No,
1: no, this one is much more connected to um, history and it is certainly fiction. It is not um, Orange telling the story of one particular historical family or the other, but it is grounded in historical. It's sort
0: of ironic, perhaps, that the indigenous tradition has perhaps more of a place for magic, and yet this is a realist novel.
1: Uh, You know, I thought about that too. And there's a great, I don't know if this is a blurb or just something that he said in a review, but the um, novelist Kaveh Akbar uh, said about this novel. Richard Pryor said he wanted to get you laughing so your mouth would be open when he poured the poison down, and that's what Orange is doing here. He is telling it like it is um, for these, you know, many decades of this family's history. It's very sad. It's very hard. But he also manages to get you interested in these people, to get you interested in their history. And he never forgets about his characters. So it's not like the history takes over there are a lot of characters keeping track of them is almost a job in itself while you're reading but if you've read there there which was tremendous this one um i'm seeing some reviewers say is even better
0: a lot of novels about grief and trouble and we're gonna take a break now um Mind everyone, and we're going to talk after the break about our non, uh, Beth-Anne's non-fiction choices, which also deal with Wait. grief and trouble. So I'll keep you... Uh, don't go away if you're interested in grief and trouble. I want to remind everyone that this high-quality content is brought to us, as well as beth uh Patrick, by uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with beth Ann to talk about her 3 nonfiction books for February. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with my favorite book critic, Beth Ann Patrick, uh, who writes for the Los Angeles Times and many other publications. I'm trying to convince her to start her own show so that she doesn't <laughs> waste her time just on keen on maybe we'll see that uh, in the new year <laughs> i
1: love on keen on i love being on so
0: well um, we love you too beth And so we talked in in the first part of three novels you chose book of love uh, and then ours and wandering stars particularly ours and wandering stars deal with grief and suffering your your one of your your books the non-fiction books is grief for people by Sloan Crosley an interesting title interesting read is grief very much in fashion these days when it comes to books
1: oh well for uh, grief is for people comes uh, uh, the title comes from something sloan crosley's grandmother who as you'll learn in the book is far from perfect uh, but she would say grief is for people not things and sloan crosley has written such amazing essays and also a couple of really snappy, stylish, fun novels. Uh, there's serious content in them too, but I find them really, really great to read. And here she is with a full on grief memoir. I do think that we are becoming more accustomed to being honest about grief and about the fact. That when we experience it, it, it takes over our lives, and this one is particularly important to me because Sloane Crosley's best friend from the time she was 25, and he hired her as an assistant at Vintage Books, was Russell Perot, who was a longtime PR at uh, Knopf and Vintage and Doubleday, and I knew Russell for a long time in the book industry. And he was one of the people who made the publishing industry a joy. He was someone who could always, he he had, He was a gay man in New York when um, Sloan was 25. He was in his late 30s. He had his demons. He also had his joys. He had a farm in upstate New York. He loved his chickens. Oh my gosh, his chicken Instagram photos gave me a lot of joy. But in 2019, unfortunately, Russell died by suicide. It was very difficult for many of us who knew him well. And so this is Sloane Crosley's attempt to give proper space and time to the person she calls her favorite. The one who, she says, somehow sees me both as I am and, and as I want to be seen, which I think is a wonderful evocation of friendship. The fact that is that Friends, true friends, longtime friends can see those different layers for us. And Russell was that for Sloan. Now she doesn't make him into any kind of saint. He was known for very brusque and snarky comments, and he had many critiques of the publishing industry. But this is a book Most
0: of which are probably absolutely correct.
1: Probably, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um he left, he left a hole in many people's hearts, and uh, Sloan has given us a book that, yes, it's about her friend, Russell Perot, but it's also a book for all people who grieve. It's also a book that has her way with language. She's just got a really wonderful style. And one of the things she does in it that I want to make sure I point out is uh, about a month before Russell died, Sloan was um, robbed and lost some jewelry of some family jewelry, including some things from the grandmother that was kind of difficult. And she manages with real grace to talk about how she kind of substituted looking for that going trying to solve the case of the missing jewelry and did that instead of admitting that she was in deep mourning so it it really shows something that happens to lots of us we don't want to admit that we're terribly sad and grieving and so we fill up our time with something else but it is it's really beautiful it's really worthwhile
0: good reading for february of course a dark <laughs> month literally probably metaphorically and another dark book in some ways uh, a non-fiction <laughs> book is by rob henderson your second choice trouble the memoir of foster care family and social class is this dark uh, beth Ann, too
1: well, it's dark. It also has a lot of hope in it. Now, a couple of things. I really was very careful when I chose this and I want to be sure that I say, you know, you might look at it and think, oh, no, not another hillbilly elegy. I mean, there's even a blurb from J.D. Vance on the cover. OK, really.
0: Oh dear.
1: but 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 this book. I think, is more about reality and less about trying to mythologize something the way Vance did in Hillbilly Elegy. Um, Neocons might find Henderson's story a justification for their ideology, but I think progressives should really pay attention and think about the issue of social class in our country while they look at trouble because rob henderson was unfortunately oh my gosh he had a terrible upbringing he had a mother who was um, addicted to drugs and all, you know all kinds of abuse even if it wasn't necessarily violence it was horrible neglect but then because his mother was deported back To South Korea um, when he was very young, he was put into the foster care system. I don't know, be jumped around to seven different foster homes. Finally, was adopted, had some stability for a few years. Then that couple um, separated, and he had to make a choice about staying in one place. But eventually, he made his way to Yale. Eventually, he made his way to Oxford. Um, He is a PhD in psychology. He's very successful. And here's the thing. This book, yeah, I'm sure that Rob Henderson has some views in common with J.D. Vance. And I, for one, do not necessarily agree with all of those views. But Henderson is very, very good at describing some of the luxury ideas that elites in the United States and rich people in the United States take for granted. You know, he describes things like in the Yale dining halls, there's spa water. Now, of course, we all know that spa water is basically lemons sliced into a container of iced water. But the fact is, people have come to expect, you know, more and more. We do have people at certain levels who have entitlement. And we don't always remember that the laws in our society, no matter how great they are at protecting rational actors, we forget that children are not rational actors. Children are not fully autonomous. They can't always make their own decisions. They can't always even tell someone safely about what's happening to them. And I think Rob Henderson writes beautifully about what happens when a child gets lost in in between, in these gaps in, in our system. And so I do think it's a, a worthy book, a worthy memoir.
0: You mentioned J.D. Vance. The um, uh, the Kirkus review suggests that it it reads in sometimes like the introduction to a future political campaign. As you say, he's on the conservative side. Do you think that these kind of stories of individuals overcoming ill fortune, making themselves, l- are more likely? These types of people are more likely to end up as conservatives than progressives.
1: You know, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to say yes or no on that, but I'll tell you what I am qualified to say yes or no on is that people love rags to riches stories in in the US. We all love to hear about someone who's overcome adversity and is so successful. That is such a part of what we have long called the American dream. And so, given our the divisions in our population right now, I think there are going to be a lot of people who say, you know, good for Rob Henderson. He beat that, you know, those elitist, um, you know, people in this place and that place. And really what happened is Rob Henderson has a remarkable inner strength and will and an amazing mind and he was able like Vance like a lot of other people who come from nothing and manage to get to really amazing places in our society it takes a lot of individual grit um and I think Henderson has that certainly but I couldn't blame him if he hadn't been the Rob Henderson to write this book. I couldn't blame a child who wasn't able to stay in the system and get that education. That child deserves rights and resources just like Henderson does.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm guessing uh, he has a degree. I, you mentioned the the, uh, the spa water at Yale. He's Ambivalent about American elites, the coastal elites, the tech elites, the journalist elites, and <laughs> all with, of the elites, <laughs> all the elites. And we end with one yes. of America's most powerful elites who always seems to wear sunglasses. Uh, she, I would yes. say she's a friend of mine, but I know Cara Swisher, I know her work, I've known her for many years. Uh, she is. Uh, an example of the elite, both uh, a high-profile journalist, uh, worked for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Lots very of talk- well-educated. Very, very well-educated, very articulate, brilliant interviewer. Yes. Uh, very popular podcaster. And now uh, she's written a book about herself, uh, some people might say. Her life is about herself. Um, <laughs> what uh, would what, what, what you think Rob Henderson would be amused or disgusted I, with Kara uh, Swisher's book?
1: Maybe really annoyed. And here's why. And this is what I'll, uh, I'll say um, I, you know, Kara Swisher and I are. Just about of an age. And also, you know, I was at AOL when it was AOL Time Warner and she was covering us, you know. uh, Her
0: first book, I think, was on the AOL. uh, Yeah, exactly.
1: And she's making a documentary about it right now, which I cannot wait to see. Uh, But here's what says it all the blurbs. the blurb's on the back cover of the book. I don't know if you could turn it around or if yeah, they're
0: there. right, I'm sure there's lots of quotes from Elon Musk. Yeah, the first one. Steve Jobs yes. back from the dead, did they?
1: Yeah. So the in 2018, book. Elon Musk said, "Well, you are right." And in 2022, Musk said, "You are an asshole."
0: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's a compliment from from
1: seriously. Uh, So here's the thing. You already said this. This is a book about Kara Swisher herself. It's a blurry line um, between Kara Swisher, the insider and Kara Swisher, the journalist. Right. And that is not just in this book. It's also in her life. There was a Vanity Fair profile recently about her that just showed, you know, all of her friends are her subjects. Her subjects are her friends. You know, it's it's a very internecine um, universe that Kara Swisher lives here's in. It, it, here's the
0: question. And I've, I've done, as I said, I've done some stuff with Car. I admire yeah. her greatly. I think she's a brilliant journalist. And oh, I'm yeah, she is. But one of the things I'm struck with her is when the lights go on, she becomes an entirely different person. And she's not... Unique in that sense, but uh, it's very vivid with her. In this in this book, which, as you say, is about herself, is Kara writing about herself with the lights on or off?
1: You know, the glasses tell me a lot about that. And in the Vanity Fair article, in fact, uh, you know, she apologizes to the writer because she says, you know, uh, I do wear the aviator shape, um, you know, in you know for myself, in van- for vanity's sake. But the dark glasses are actually because she has uh, a condition that makes her very sensitive to light. But I think the glasses also kind of occlude her ability to really consider herself and her legacy. All right, she's covered it all. She's interviewed everyone. She was the earliest adapter, at least in journalism, to tech. And yet we don't really learn a lot in Burn This. We we see a lot. It's um lots of names, lots well, of things. I can imagine.
0: Different. I mean, she knows everyone. Yeah. I, and I, I like that word, a clue, a clue. Maybe <laughs> the book should be called occlusion.
1: Occlusion. <laughs> Uh, but I do think, uh, uh, I know that someone said somewhere that when it, Sheryl Sandberg used to say that the constant joke in Silicon Valley was people would say, I hope Kara never sees this. And I thought, oh, I want her to write a book, and maybe she will, um, about what this all really means, what how it's changed What's her. truthful, yeah. I mean,
0: who is that very high-profile... Um... Writer in Hollywood, uh, the woman who was the equivalent of Cara Swisher in Hollywood. Oh
1: my gosh, uh, see,
0: who was the ultimate insider.
1: You have stumped me now,
0: Andrew. Um, well, I can't remember her no, name, I should
1: know it. I, I but, um, yeah, it, uh, it, yeah, it, as
0: you say, I mean, Cara knows everything and everyone. Does she write in this book about some of her? high-profile relationships uh oh absolutely wife, i think was uh a, some another woman i've known for many years uh who was a vp at google
1: there's lots in there about everyone everyone from musk to jobs uh, or jobs i never know uh, different jobs. people jobs yeah um to uh, you know uh, to gates you know and on and there's Which, a you lot of
0: everyone so Rob Henderson, the, uh, uh, suggest the reviews of the Henderson book suggested that it was a book before um, before a political career like J.D. Right. Vance. Right. Um, a lot of talk, I haven't heard it recently, but there used to be a lot of talk of Kara running for office. Did you get a sense of any kind of political ambitions from this book? What will Kara's next act, or does she have another major act in her?
1: You know, it's very interesting to me because right now, you know, she has two teenage children, um, or at least they were teenage you know, a couple of years ago from her first marriage. Yeah. And now with her second wife, she has very young children. Um, yeah. I believe one of them is, is still a toddler. Uh, and maybe there's, a I don't know if there's a baby or what's going on, but I wonder if that is in the cards because of this young family that she's taking care of. But certainly I could see her very easily becoming a powerful political reporter because she has the network. uh, She has, I don't think
0: she really needs to, I mean, she's, Oh no, she she doesn't need
1: to, but if she wanted to, that could be, you know, something, I mean, who knows? Uh, She's already got pot, at least, I don't know, is the new, the latest podcast, is that her second or third? I, you know, she, might have a show. She might have something else. Who knows? A uh, character.
0: Oh, I, I mean, it's, this book sounds a little less serious than the Crossley book or the Henderson book. Is there anything is. really serious it's, in the book? Is it, there a basic fundamental critique of Silicon Valley, a degree, a narrative of disappointment?
1: Uh, you know, I think she does, uh, you know, she does talk about the fact that things. Are so often facades. Things are so often superficial. Things can be fly by night. Um, startups can disappear. So she, and this is you know all the way all the way through. I mean she approaches, but doesn't go as deep as I would like um, her to go.
0: Yeah, it's a rather lukewarm recommendation I'm, I'm
1: well it's a book that a you. lot of people are going to want to read so
0: yeah, it's, it's the um, kind of book that people will pick up in airports especially with that kind of cover exactly. finally always uh Ann, I always end with an unfair question a lot of people don't have your time or your reading skills they mainly have time for one book in February so just one book which would it be
1: just one of these if I were going to read just one of these books, I would read *Hours* by Philip B. Williams. This is this is a book that will truly be an enriching reading experience. Also, make you think. Um, it is a piece of it is a work of art.